Well, all good things must come to an end. It's a saying that you've probably heard before. I tried to do some background research. The earliest occurrence from what I could find was around the 1300s, so it's been around for a while. All good things must come to an end. I've heard that used at funerals before. I've heard it used uh, when I come to the bottom of the vat of guacamole that Tony Weir made for me. All good things must come to an end. There's an ending. There's a time span on these. When we go away, when we leave a family reunion, all good things must come to an end. And yet Psalm 23 reminds us as believers that the goodness of being our shepherd's sheep, the goodness of being with the Lord, it is one in which it will not end. And not only is it so sure and certain of our future inheritance in Christ because of what He has done on our behalf, He is our shepherd, the reality is so sure that it actually informs how we walk through life today. A future that is so certain that it impacts how we do today. Now, we all do things today that we believe we're informed by for tomorrow. The students travel here to, to spend time studying for a hopeful tomorrow of a career. And yet, that's not a certainty. But David writes and finishes Psalm 23 as one who has a perfect certainty because of the greatness of his shepherd, and that informs him today. So we ask the Lord in these final verses, verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 23, to give us insight of the good shepherd who pursues us closer than even the darkest valleys or enemy. In verse 5, Lord, would you give us an insight of the fact that you pursue us even closer the darkest valley or enemy. Now, certainly a shadow can expand. It can appear to expand. Valleys aren't moving, but the shadows from the valleys can move with the setting sun. The enemies, however, are fully mobile. They're able to travel around, and David is being pursued by his enemies. And yet he's reminded that the reality of the presence of his shepherd is closer. Though an enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, as we see the description of false teachers in the New Testament, and Satan himself as the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, longing to get between the shepherd and the sheep, were reminded in Psalm 23 that he will not be successful. That the enemies can only hope to distract, but they cannot actually get between the shepherd and his sheep, the host and his favored guest. This is a promise that we need to cling to and remember this morning. For easily our mind can think about the anxieties and fears and enemies of righteousness that we see in our world or that are around us. The areas of, of pride and temptation that are around every one of us. They're loud. They gain our attention. And yet we're reminded as David is in the presence of all of those things that his shepherd is even closer than they are. This is a good news for us. David speaks as one who knows the hospitality of his shepherd host. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When's the last time you had somebody over? You hosted somebody for something. It could be a dinner. It could be you had somebody stay with you at night. When's the last time you had somebody over? COVID, it could have been quite some time, right? Since you had somebody over. Now, it's common if you have a guest over that the guest is the one for whom we defer things to. How can I help you? Do you need anything? Can I help you get around? You, you care for their needs. If they need something, matter of fact, we usually ask that. Do you 
need anything. And we, and we go and we aim to meet their need, to inconvenience ourselves, to serve them, our guest. Now in Middle, Middle Eastern culture, and we see in the Old Testament that it went up even a notch from what we are accustomed to experiencing as far as a host and a guest. And Middle Eastern cultures today still accommodate this understanding that if one receives somebody as a guest, they receive all the burdens and all the components of their life. That they're their advocates. They're their protectors. We actually see this in, uh, in the life and the story of Navy SEAL Petty Officer First Class Marcus Luttrell. In Operation Red Wings in 2005, he, with three other SEALs, he would be severely injured. The three others giving their life in the Afghan village. They would ultimately come and be found by a man named Muhammad Gulab. A man who was a part of this little village of 60 homes and families. Though injured, Muhammad would take him in. And would take him, him as a guest, not only of his home, but by default of the village. He would give them first aid. Marcus would receive food and nourishment and care and protection by the village against the Taliban fighters that were pursuing him to try to kill him. Now, if you're familiar with the story, he was able to be rescued and is still alive today and, and speaks some of this occurrence. And yet he speaks of the fact that this village that took him in, that counted the cost to bring this man in as a favored guest, has brought to that village numerous attacks by the Taliban since then, becoming even heightened enemies because of what they've done by becoming the host of Mr. Littrell. David speaks as one who knows the realities of the enemies of righteousness, and his host is the Good Shepherd. His host is Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has taken him in and has anointed his head with oil. He protects him and watches over him. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now we as believers know the reality of hospitality in Christ, that we who have been forgiven much are to forgive. We who are recipients of grace, we show grace. We've, this, is, this marks our life. We have known the hospitality of God and know the hospitality of God and we show the hospitality of God. But we're reminded of this also in the gathering of corporate worship. Every one of us comes in here not with, with different burdens and anxieties and enemies and perhaps temptations that pursue us. And one of the charges that you give to the elders is to lead in the way of, of prayer and, and teaching. The elders, we gather most every Tuesday at 6 in the morning, and we pray for prayer requests. We pray through the membership of our church, but also uh, prayer requests that are given to us, submitted to us by email or connect card, and we pray every week for those. And yet we know that there's only a small percentage of those are actually given to us. There's probably more prayer requests are given to our small group leaders or to somebody in your small group that you're really tight to, whether it's a men's huddle or a, or a women's study group of FFE or, or whichever one it may be. We will ever only know of a small percentage of the burdens that befall us. But what I want to do is privileges of being in a multi-generational church is I want to give you an insight to some of those types of prayer requests that we hear on a regular basis. So for corporate worship, we gather and middle school students and high school students gather with us. And these middle school and high school students, in addition to the wealth of temptations that they face, they also experience bullying on a regular basis and anxieties. This is the first generation that will never know what it's like to not be on call. 
with the power of technology and communication, when we were kids, we could leave that to an extent at school, but it follows them home. 24 access, 24 hour access. The pressure of being on call and maintaining a professional image as a middle school student, can you imagine? That's in addition to getting grades and all the different pressures and temptations that are taking place. And yet they gather for corporate worship to be reminded of the nearness of the shepherd. We have college and graduate students that, that gather with us every Sunday, students that have mounting college debt, thoughts of changing majors and restarting, but a fear of looking bad perhaps before family and occurring more debt that may happen. Prayers about where to begin their career. But we've already talked about this. The answer is Nacogdoches, so just take that off your plate. Pressures of dating and many also figuring out in their life for the first time, what is it to say no? They figure out as we get older, we have to say no because what? We've said yes to far too many things. So their social life begins to tank as they begin into their careers and begin to exit. And yet they gather and they worship and sing songs of praise to the king, their shepherd. We think of young adults who are considering career frustrations. They've now been long enough into a career. They've studied or they've been in the, the oil field or the military long enough to be able to think, did I make a bad choice? They begin to question their decisions. In addition to this, they have questions of dating. Should they date? Should they not date? If they're dating, should we get married? When should we get married? Questions of kids begin to come as they age. And many find out that they perhaps have infertility issues or other pains that they experience along the way. Others are balancing roommates and what it is in this season. Others are hoping, maybe I can buy a house. And yet the reality of mounting debt and the competitiveness of the housing market is a dream. And yet they gather to worship and pray, even with heartache and family members. You think of middle-aged adults, those through their 50s. You've become professional taxis. The goal becomes you can't even dream. You're just trying to get to the next week the next week, the next week, the next week. Anxious if they're making the right decision for their kids. Did I send them to the right school? Did this happen? Did that happen? And they're forced to see their kids begin to stand on their own faith, and their own feet. And with that comes what? Inevitable sin and hurt and heartache for which then their parent feels vicariously responsible. Other parents uh, through their 50s are now in this season of the tug the tug of their kids that are going to leave and become empty nesters and eventually grandkids, but also on the other side, the tug of aging, failing health of parents and what to do. A difficult season, to say the least. And also we think of senior adults. Senior adults who find themselves not only with kids that may or may not be walking with the Lord, but grandkids who may or may not be walking with the Lord. The senior adults whose bodies are failing on a regular basis, they're making more trips to the doctors and the grocery store. All the heartache and compounding hurts and pains, and yet they're still long to see their friends come to know Christ. And yet they check the obituary regularly, seeing their friends and the time for which they could come to repentance and faith run out. These are just a handful of the burdens on a regular basis in addition to basic temptations and, and basic components and burdens for others to come to know Christ that they know. Just a, just a glimpse of the voices that you hear sing around you on Sunday morning. And I want to speak to those senior adults for a moment very clearly. 
We are so happy that you are here. We are so happy. Even if your body begins to fail you and it is difficult to stand and you can't stand for any of the songs, we are grateful that you're here. Others' difficulty on, on staying consistent with rhythm and articulating the words out loud, we know your heart's praising the Lord. Others that have already fallen asleep at this point in my sermon. One of my first sermons I ever gave, uh, uh, a man in our church fell asleep literally by the time I got to the pulpit. And then the second time I preached, he was asleep again. And he didn't bring a nightcap or anything like that to let me know. And he came up to me after the service, and I was kind of confused by it. I was kind of hurt by it, to be honest. I was like, man, come on. Drink some extra coffee. And he shared with me that they were actually trying different medications, and it was making them incredibly drowsy. And he apologized. And when I realized that, oh. And yet here this brother was, even though he had all the excuses in the world to not physically gather, he wanted to be in the house of the Lord. He wanted to be reminded of the nearness of his shepherd. Even though he couldn't sing, he wanted to be nowhere else than to be around his brothers and sisters in Christ the generation singing to the Lord. That's the goodness that David has as one who sits at the table of the Lord. The very Lord who prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies. That's the encouragement we each have as we hear the gospel and we're reminded of the faithfulness of our shepherd who is indeed closer than a brother, closer than encroaching enemies. That's the goodness of our God that David reminds us of. And we're reminded of the gospel that we're hidden in Christ. We're participants in the new covenant through Christ's blood. He's closer than even our sin. That's the goodness of our God. What does he do? He anoints David's head with oil. Now, just like in verse 4, how verse 4 comes into verse 5, with the reality of dark valleys and now with enemies, I think the imagery is intentionally kind of linking two scenes together, the role of a shepherd and the role of a host. And different commentators have trouble with this, and I agree. It's hard to know for sure why, because much of the imagery also applies to the role of a shepherd and a sheep and also a dinner host. So we think of this word of oil, and we read about oil here, and, and this is something unusual. So I want to speak to maybe two ways that this applies one of our members, Mike Stewart, shared with me uh, about a book called the, uh, uh, the Shepherd's Life. And, he's, and it was filled with just all these insights of how uh, Hebrew shepherds would use oil in their basic service. They would use the oil to coat the face of the, the sheep to protect it from gnats and parasites that might come along. They would use it because another sheep would come and try to butt its head. And the oil would allow it to be a glancing blow rather than a concussing blow. Uh, he would also speak about how they would use oil to pull it, pour it in various viper holes that would make it impossible for the viper in the green grass areas to come out and to bite the sheep. All kinds of different roles that a shepherd could use for oil. David says that he anoints my head with oil. But also the role of oil for a host. As good Bible students, as we read Scripture and we read something that we may say, you know, that's kind of weird. That, that's kind of different. Because I've been to a lot of dinner parties. I've invited myself over. And I've never had anybody be like, Brent, we're so glad you're here. There you go. Here's some olive oil on your head. All right? Or even just the touching on my face. I've never had that happen yet. Don't you dare do that. When I come over, I know, I know you people way too well for that. So we read that and we read this and we think, well, what's the role of that in that culture? 
And it, it simply usually gives us an insight that's not right or wrong, but it was a clear cultural component that had clear meaning for them. But for us, the methods may have shifted, but the principle is there of hospitality. It's a beautiful sign. So what I want you to do, I want you to look over to Luke chapter 7, if you would. Look to Luke 7, and while you're flipping there, I want to read a couple of occurrences in the Psalms where the authors give us insights of how oil was used of a host, a celebratory move that showed a visible sign that somebody that was welcomed into their home was a special guest. They're getting the special treatment. I'm the host, you're the guest, I'm going to serve you. Here's the oil. You're set apart. And this is in addition to what we see with with the Lord anointing Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. So while you look over to Luke 7, let me read for you Psalm 45, 6 through 7 of Israel so you can see some of these Old Testament uses. There's many, many we could have used, but I'm just going to read two of them. Psalm 45, 6 through 7 of Israel, uh, the author says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and and cassia. The picture of the Israel being this anointed people, blessed among the nations that do not know Yahweh as their God. In Psalm 92, we see it mentioned again. Listen for oil. It's olive oil idea usually. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, Yahweh, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you, shall, you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. And now we come to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 48. Jesus is invited over by a Pharisee named Simon. And we'll see the contrast between how the role of the host that Simon is to play that he neglects. And yet this sinful woman steps right in and does them naturally by her own desires. So as we read this, in beginning in verse 36 of chapter 7 in the Gospel of Luke, I want to give, and we'll see these insights here, but there's three common roles that you executed as a host that was normal for hospitality. Number one, you would have water for their feet to clean their feet. That would have gotten dirty. Number two, you would have uh, kissed their hand or their cheek as a sign of greeting, and then the component of anointing their head with oil to show their special position in your home. So keep those three in mind. And let's begin now. Verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. So remember, their tables, you've probably seen a picture, is one in which they reclined back. They didn't have chairs in the way that we do. They had this recliner-type component. They reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. But now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to, him, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love, you, love him more? The Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. And then he turned toward the woman. And he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, he loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Oil, likely olive oil, is valuable. But the ointment used by this sinful woman is even more of value. Simon, this teacher of the law of God, neglected even to anoint Jesus' head with oil. She lavished his feet with something even more valuable. The man appears not to have done the welcome kiss to Jesus, and yet this woman bathes his feet with kisses. She understands how great Jesus is. Simon neglected his role of a host. David says that you anoint my head with oil. Jesus takes the role of host. The Lord Yahweh, He is our host. He knows the reality of every enemy. And He's righteous. He leads us in righteous paths for His namesake. And He welcomes us into His table, preparing a feast for us. And we eat and we drink deeply of Him. And He protects us. But the beauty of this time with the Lord is that it doesn't end. It continues forever and ever. We never cease being guests of this shepherd host. He's that good and that kind and that merciful and gracious and forgiving. That's the goodness of our God. But how often, how easy is it for me and for us to take our eyes off of our host and to put it upon the clanging gongs of the enemies outside that hope to distract us from our call, our commission as men and women, young and less young, to be a people committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ for His glory. And that's the goodness and the peace that David has in the midst of all the enemies and all the valleys. The nearness of his shepherd is closer than the chanting of his enemies. His enemies, try as they might, cannot get between the shepherd and his sheep. The host and the guest. That's good news for us. So we ask, Lord, show us distractions that may come into our life that prevent us from abiding in You and making disciples for Your glory. Now David's perspective, though certainly still familiar with enemies, his perspective is so clearly upon the Lord that he can say in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This is what leads us to, to make this statement. This observation that the Good Shepherd transforms today's perspective through tomorrow's promise. The reality of future promises tomorrow are so certain because the power and the love and the presence of the Lord are so sure 
And the faithfulness of the shepherd are so right that they inform how David is to go through life in the circumstances of suffering and heartache today. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. It's a surely with a, with a certainty. David has not yet been fully delivered from the dark valleys, and yet he knows that his hope is certain. Once again, I keep referring to this. It is the picture in which Jesus gives, don't fear those that can only kill your body. The enemies, if this is a scene in which he's running from Saul, the enemy may be successful and kill him, but they can't separate him from his shepherd. There were hundreds of martyr accounts for which I could give of faithful believers who endured suffering with a peace and a confidence, even unto death, because of the sureness of our Savior. We could look simply at Stephen, the crowned one, who with confidence would endure the hardship of others with a clear picture of clarity upon the Lord his Savior, who would stand in approval. That's the goodness of our God. The faithfulness of our shepherd, it shapes and informs our present reality. Why? Because we see this word again. We've already seen in Psalm, this word hesed. The picture of the loyal love of God, the faithful, the covenant faithfulness. It's really, it's translated in a multitude of ways. It's because God is faithful to his covenant, a covenant, a promise between God and man. You remember the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. A covenant is, is something that has consequences of blessing and with curses. And so the lesser party that goes through this example of suffering is one that says, if I don't uphold my part as the lesser in this agreement, let the consequence we see before us be like this. And we see in the book of Genesis this covenant that's cut. And when we, when we begin the book of Exodus soon, we'll, we'll see exactly this as Jonathan starts us off in this next week. We'll see the picture of the covenant as we think of Exodus. It's the Lord, Yahweh, who goes between the animals that are ripped to two. To say, if I don't keep my promise, let me be like these animals, shredded in half. Entrails and all. And David is able to claim and know that he rests assured in the covenant faithfulness of God because he will keep his word. He's faithful. And this is why translators also translate this as loving kindness and mercy for us. Because as recipients of this, we know it's the mercy and kindness of God for which we are recipients. So let Psalm 23 be forever a, a prayer and a reminder of the steadfast sweetness of our shepherd and the promise of his presence. I don't want you to flip there, but I want to read for you Hebrews 13. I'd like your eyes, though, to stay on Psalm 23. If you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 23. And what we'll note is... In Hebrews 13, written over a millennium later, we'll see the same themes come through for which the author encourages the, the church, encourages the believers, encourages those that know grace, those that have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in Christ. In Hebrews 13, I'll read 5 through 8, but look at Psalm 23 and see if you notice any similar themes of encouragement for the people of God. The author says, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Remember, David begins the psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How does verse 6 end? 
I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my what? Shepherd, feeder, helper. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not fear. What did David say? I will fear no evil. For what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Trust in Christ. Make disciples. Sing His praises. This is good news for us, isn't it, church? This is good news for us. It's the good news of Psalm 23 that when we hear it read at a funeral or wherever you might hear this next, recall back the faithfulness of the shepherd. Let the Word of God minister to you in that moment as you sit with others. As we come into our next steps now, we have four specific ones. And men, keep this in mind. We'll discuss these a little bit tonight at the Beast Feast. But number one is, would you share with someone your story of when, great, when God's grace actually began to click for you? This is a great question to ask and to consider. First for ourselves, to ask, when did grace begin to make sense to me? I don't think we can fully grasp it entirely of the scope of grace because we become even more aware of our sin and we think, oh, God covered that too? Selfishness and pride, oh, God covered that too? And the grace of God, the unearned favor of what God has done for us in Christ. When did it hit you like a wave to understand the reality of God's grace and that you're forgiven and a sure foundation in Christ? When did you first understand grace? Discuss that with someone with this week and use this as a conversation starter. Say, I was just thinking of grace and unearned favor. Everything in our life is earned, but grace is unearned favor of God. And he would know the depths of our enemies in the valleys of darkness. When did you understand grace? If you've never understood grace, and today is the day in which you say, you know what, I, I understand who Jesus is, and I, I want to trust in Him, I want to turn from sin and commit my life to Him. You come today at the end of the service, we'll have leaders here to pray with you and lead you in your next steps. When did God's grace begin to click for you? Number two. How does remembering that you are pursued and preserved by your good shepherd encourage you to persevere in the faith? We will persevere in the faith and, and we're preserved by the good shepherd. How does that minister to you this morning as we consider Psalm 23? It's not a denial of our enemies. It's not a denial of dark valleys, but an awareness of the closeness of our shepherd, the communion we have with our competent shepherd. How does that encourage your spirit to persevere in your trial today. Share that with the Lord and share that with someone else. Number three, I want you to do some math this week. Today, actually. Do some math today. And all the math professors in the room said, this is one right here. There's another back there. There's one over there. It's probably some outside the room. I don't know. But here's what I want you to calculate. This is something we don't usually do. Usually we say thank you. But I think it's good to schedule time today to actually calculate. Try to take a guess of the numbers of ways in which your shepherd, the nourisher, has fed you. Do it literally first. Calculate your age and figure out if you've had at least three meals a day. How many meals has he fed you? If you're drinking eight glasses of water a day, how many glasses of water are you drinking? 
How many has he provided for you? Just some math. If you're 70 years old, you've eaten 76,000 meals. 600,000 glasses of water he's provided for you. With a heart of gratitude, would you just say, oh, thank you, Lord. How many countless moments were you protected driving and missing disaster by enemy, by inches? How much wickedness and evil did the Lord protect you from? With others that aimed harm for you, but the Lord protected you. How many others, perhaps, of opportunities for wickedness and temptation would you have walked in, but the Lord restrained you in His kindness? How many times were you reminded in your life of God's love? I start to think of all the times I've not only attended church, but had a believer in my life minister to me and pray for me. Thousands upon thousands of times. How many brothers and sisters in Christ has the Lord used specifically to minister to you and pursue you, even before you came to know Him? Thank the Lord with grateful hearts. As we turn to this song and consider this final next step, ask God for courage and faithfulness to pursue someone with the gospel. You think of somebody in your life that you would mark down perhaps as one of your enemies. What would happen in that person's life if their heart prayer became I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A parent or a child or a neighbor that you know, that's what would happen if grace gets a hold of them? And their prayer, their greatest hope for 2021, 2022 becomes, surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God can do that. Ask for courage to be a part of that. So what I want to do is I want to pray before we stand and sing together as a congregation this song of Psalm 23 that we'll sing in the future as a remembrance of this time together. Would you pray with me before we stand and sing a song of praise to our great and good shepherd? Oh Lord, you're good. Your mercies endures forever. God, we do look forward to the day of coming settled rest. We know that others will come and go, and yet we will rest in the goodness of being in your presence forever. We look forward to the day in which there will be no more a stranger or a guest, but we're reminded that we are but a child at home in your presence. We trust that you will make all things right. We trust that you're gracious and merciful. We trust that you're able to bring the dead to life. We trust that you love us better than we love ourselves and you love others better than even than we do. We know that you've anointed our head with oil. You've welcomed us as guests. You've counted us as sheep among your flock. Give us courage and give us joy to sing your praise and be reminded of your nearness in every trial that befaces our congregation and faithful congregations across our community and across the world. Preserve them, Lord, and build your church. We trust in you today. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said together. Would you stand with me, church family?